The views expressed on this show are not necessarily those of KUCI, its management, the California Board of Regents, or Dr. Nicole Quick. Good morning. I'm your host, Claudia Shamba, welcoming you to the June 16th, 2020 edition of Ask a Leader Becomes Ask a Neighbor. Today, for the full hour, we hear from author Catherine Stewart with her new book out, The Power Worshippers, Inside the Dangerous Rise of Nationalism. We'll be right back after station break. Welcome back to the show. My guest for the full hour is Catherine Stewart, who will unpackage the culture wars from the 500 foot to the 40,000 foot levels with her book, The Power Worshippers, Inside the Dangerous Rise of Religious Nationalism, published by Bloomsbury. Her previous book is The Good News Club, focused on the religious right and public education. She's also published two novels and co-wrote a book about the musical Rent. Her other work has appeared in the New York Times, the Washington Post, the New Republic, the Guardian, the American Prospect, Reuters, the Atlantic, Music, Rolling Stone, the New York Observer, for starters. As well, she's appeared on national and public network television stations and on our nearby background briefing on KPFK. Catherine Stewart attended the University of Chicago With roots she put down in Central California, she later repatriated to the Northeast USA. She comes to us today from her home in the New York City area. Welcome to Ask a Leader Becomes Ask a Neighbor, Catherine Stewart. It's great to be here. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you, Catherine. And I've been wanting Catherine on as I saw more culture wars mounted locally. We're going to listeners talk a bit that sort of the national general picture and we will definitely get ourselves behind the orange curtain by halfway through, if not sooner. Well, Catherine, it's a phenomenal book, which I do encourage listeners to read, especially for how you illustrate what a long game in politics looks like. The power worshipers is in one book, A, something for First Amendment geeks or B, a manual for grassroots activists to take measure of countervailing movement strategies and tactics. And it's, it's not a spoiler alert for me to ask you first, Catherine, to describe why religious nationalism or Christian nationalism, as you talk about, it's not about religion, but more about power and politics. Sure. Well, let's start first with the definition of Christian nationalism. It involves the claim that the foundation of legitimate government in the United States is bound up with a reactionary understanding of the Christian religion. The claim is that the United States essentially was founded on the Bible and we need to get back to its roots in order to uh, make us great again. So it's an anti-democratic political ideology as well as a device for mobilizing people and 
concentrating power in the hands of a new elite. They, it mobilizes people by mobilizing their vote, directing them to vote for the hyper-conservative candidates that the movement favors. It's a form of identity politics in that it ties the idea of America to very specific cultural and religious identities. So there are other terms that people commonly use to describe the movement include religious right. I use this as a term I use a lot as well, Christian right. Some people use terms like uh, dominionism. I've heard other terms used to describe the movement on the whole. And um, I use those terms where appropriate, but I often use Christian nationalism in referring to the whole because it both reflects that this is a political movement and it also makes its similarities with other forms of religious nationalism around the world. So when we're seeing leaders like Putin in Russia or Orban in Hungary or Erdogan in Turkey binding themselves tightly to religious hyper-conservatives in their countries in order to consolidate a more authoritarian form of political power, we rightly recognize that as a form of religious nationalism. And that's what we're I use the term religious nationalism on the cover and the subtitle to make those links explicit. And that's what we're seeing with Trump's alliances with religious hyper-conservatives. So Catherine, the expression, the term dominionism, is that a, a term that's used by the Christian nationalists themselves? I'm just trying to think of, because I associate it with like a particular kind of Protestantism. But who, who uses that term themselves? I would call, you know, dominionism involves a subset of the larger movement. Uh, it's the idea that uh, Christians of a certain reactionary variety should um, dominate all aspects of government and society. And there's a kind of a strain of dominionism they call Seven Mountains Dominionism, or, um, you know, the Seven Mountains Mandate, which is the idea that only Christians of a certain variety should dominate. Uh, they've identified seven areas of culture, including government, law, entertainment, family and religion. Uh, they've you know, got seven categories of, of activity. Education is a big one for them. But I wouldn't call every person who supports the movement a dominionist for sure. And you know what? I think when we're trying to understand the movement and the uh, terms that we can use it's really helpful to distinguish between the leaders and the rank and file. Regarding the rank and file, you're talking about a really wide range of people with very different interests, backgrounds, and ideas. So it's, mm -hmm. it's hard to generalize, but here I'm gonna go a little bit, do a little bit of generalization. Oh, okay. I think a, a substantial number of them would not really explicitly support anything like a theocracy, and a lot of them would be unhappy to learn all of the details about what their leaders are proposing. A lot of them are, really voting identity and not just policy. So when they're voting for a candidate who promises to end abortion or reunite church and state, or if they insist that America is a Christian nation, they're not really explicitly aiming for major fundamental changes in the way of American government is organized. What they're really doing here is making a statement about who they are and what they value in themselves. So their identity may only be Christian nationalist in a very loose way, and it's likely not a term that they would used to describe themselves. It's more like they're lending support for, for the larger movement. For the leaders of the movement, however, the heads of the religious right policy groups, networking groups, media and legislative initiatives, and the other sort of areas of the movement that I describe in my book, the legal and data networks and the like, their vision involves a lot more power for themselves. 
and for their networks, obviously, and for the political leaders that they support. And many of them are really looking forward to this time when only members of certain approved reactionary varieties of their religion are in charge of all aspects of government and society. You know, they're also really working toward a time when they can rely on the government uh, for a couple of things. Number one, a constant flow of taxpayer money. And number two, policies that explicitly favor their religion. Privilege them, in other words. So what you, you sort of allude to when you're talking about all of the participants, the players, however you want to say it, this book, it phenomenally reads like it's a huge who's who of organizations that have amassed into this, this infrastructure, I don't think the likes of which perhaps have, have they ever existed in the history of the United States. You know, the unprecedented nature of this movement um, is that there's a kind of near perfect alignment <laughs> with the movement and, uh, and the Republican Party of today. It's a kind of movement that over time has dragged the uh, Republican Party off to the right. So, and so it's a kind of, it was like a hyper-conservative counter-revolution that really started in the 1970s in some aspects. You know, and over time they invested in all of the, you know, modern campaign infrastructure. They invested in data and media and messaging and various types of networks and legal groups. And what we're seeing today is the consequences in our politics. I think the movement has unprecedented political power. So, you know, it's a political movement and by their nature, political movements are quite complex. And this one is really complicated. It consists of a really dense ecosystem of both for-profit and non-profit organizations. I named so many of them yes. in the book. I Legal. know. I've, some of them I've never heard of ever, <gasps> nor or some of their leaders that upon which this infrastructure has been built, the literature from the mm -hmm. 30s and the 50s and, and so on. It's I mean, it's so it's such an essential read to be acquainted with all of them. And they're not names that will be necessarily visible in the mainstream media by That's design true. in some cases, as you say. Mm -hmm. That's true. It's interesting. Some people ask if this is like some kind of crazy conspiracy. Of course, it's not a conspiracy. It's happening in plain sight. I mean, you yes. know, conspiracies happen under the cover of darkness. These folks are doing what they do out in the open, but I think listening is really underrated. I think that sometimes people don't understand the movement for, well, there are a couple of reasons. First of all, they don't really listen to what the leaders have to say, not only when they're just, you know, giving some kind of one-off to the public or appearing on CNN or something like that and give a little soundbite, but what do they say to one another in the forums that they share? Like, you know, instead of listening to, you know, a, a 15 seconds, 10 second soundbite that Robert Jeffress says on CNN, you it, better to go and watch some of his sermons that he gives, you know, better to read the books that they write, better to listen to the radio shows that they appear on. So, you know, it's not that they're hiding, it's that we're not listening. And Catherine, you've been to the services, you talk about that as part of your research. I imagine first for the Good News Club, you were, as you're raising your children, there you're seeing their movement politics affecting some of parallel developments of your children's own schooling, but there's also, or in your, the school system, a parallel to your child's children's school system, but also, and you've gone to services throughout 
California and in Texas and in Florida. I mean, you're, you're, there's some, some combat pay. So well, it's, it's your research. I just go places where I'm allowed to go, including over the past decade, I've gone to right-wing conferences, houses of worship, marches for life, values voters summits and, and things like that. I tend to just go places where I'm allowed to go. And sometimes I get invited to things, you know, but a lot of my research was done in my office, listening to what they have to see on the radio shows, reading books they write. So I, you know, had conversations with innumerable folks in the movement on all sides, both among the rank and file, and also I've communicated with uh, leaders of the, of the movement as well. Mm-hmm. So it's, it's really, this book is really the culmination of 10 years of research, over 10 years that started back in 2009 when I was living in Santa Barbara. So we're talking about dominionism. That's a piece of it. And I, I don't know if you want to take up how these strains I've talked with. Sometimes I've had clergy and we've talked about various identity politics with clergy. And I say it wouldn't happen without the Calvinist tradition over the you know, centuries in our country. But, and you do. You call out Calvinism. as, And I want to use that as a frame of reference when I talk about with you the breakdown of where their charter shows up in institutions around the U.S. And so, for instance, we can talk about the patriarchy, where this plays out in what men's roles are, what women's roles are, and all the way to the corporal punishment that is an exercise to reinforce the whole message with the next generation. Yeah, the movement is clearly patriarchal, as you said, with the exception of a segment of the charismatic world, the part of the new apostolic reformation, which Mm -hmm. tolerates women in leadership positions. Tolerates. Nationalism has normalized the idea of patriarchy at home and at church. One of the really intriguing people I wrote about in my book, Ralph Drollinger, ministers to political leaders at the highest levels of power, at least 12 out of 15 members of Trump's current and former cabinet have attended his Bible study groups in the state capitol. And he's got this very full and broad-based range of policy positions, social, economic, and foreign policy that he's teaching to political leaders. So he is an ardent advocate of male supremacy and female subordination at home and at church. And I describe how he got his graduate degree at the Master's Seminary, which is also a theological seminary in Southern California, mm-hmm, whose mm-hmm. leader, John MacArthur, was an ardent supporter of such ideas. He expressed them really clearly in a sermon titled, The Willful Submission of the Christian Wife. You know, in most of the evangelical churches today that drive support for the movement, if you really dig into their documents that elaborate on their theology, you're going to find language advocating patriarchy at home and at church. But, you know, even in charter schools, like the one that I wrote about in uh, chapter 11 of my book, it's called the Foundation Academy. They advocate this um, ideology in their student teacher handbook. It's really shocking. Mm -hmm. There's a section in the, like the parent and teacher handbook that, you know, every school has one, they lay out the rules of the school. They have a whole category in this handbook for a school that, by the way, takes a lot of uh, tax dollars through voucher money. I'm going to read you just a couple of things. I have it in front of me. They condemn all forms of sexual immorality, including adultery, homosexuality, and pornography. 
They say, we speak on behalf of the unborn and contend for the sanctity of all human life from conception to natural death. And then they have, here's a patriarchy part. They say, a husband has the God-given responsibility to provide for, protect, and lead his family. A wife is to submit herself graciously to the servant leadership of her husband. I mean, so then- and what's the date for this that you're reading? Where, this, when was- Let's see, it was revised April 13th, 2017. Oh my goodness. So it's really interesting. They, it goes on even more as they say, and this is language you're going to hear a lot, actually. Say, she being in the image of God, is, as is her husband, as is thus equal to him, thus has the God-given responsibility to respect her husband and to serve as his helper in managing the household and nurturing the next generation. So there's a lot of this kind of language. I think the leaders of the movement are really sophisticated in how they frame things. This idea of male domination and female submission is often framed as an expression of men and women are created equal, but with different roles. So we can say it's like perhaps a tiny victory for women that leaders of the movement now feel they have to couch their demand for patriarchy and male domination in the language of pseudo-equality. But still the demand is for patriarchy. So for those of you who've just joined us, for the full hour, my guest is Catherine Stewart, investigative journalist with her new book, the Power Worshippers, Inside the Dangerous Rise of Religious Nationalism. It's published by Bloomsbury Publishing House. Um, I, I want to go back to the part you read about from conception to natural death. And that is a sweeping reference to, uh, we can see where some of the reproductive politics uh, could enter into that, what that captures. And as you talk about in your book, that the Christian nationalists were present when a not-so-natural death was happening to Terry Schiavo and to some of, I'm trying to think, it was the paramedic that was pregnant and she had gone into a coma from, uh, I'm, I can't remember her name right now, but the, those two cases that they've been involved, they've intervened in, and I wouldn't necessarily call those natural deaths how those deaths were prolonged against family members' wishes. So that, that's a sweeping conception of natural death where they, they value the human. That's, you know, it's very interesting. And then if you look at the, a lot of that has to do with laying the groundwork for the abortion politics of today, this idea of sanctity of life. And, but, you know, the abortion was actually created for political purposes in the movement. We have to remember at the time that Roe v. Wade passed, most Republican Protestants supported the decision. Even the Southern Baptist Convention yes, published that's interesting. You talk about that. praising the decision. They had actually affirmed the, their agreement with the decision in 1971. At the time, they believed that abortion, Roe v. Wade was a, like the legalization of abortion for the emotional, physical, and physical health of the mother and well-being of the mother, along with other conditions, including, you know, fetal abnormality was acceptable. I mean, just remember Ronald Reagan signed into law uh, the most liberal abortion bill in 1967 when he was governor of California. Mm-hmm. When Roe v. Wade was passed, Betty Ford held it as a great, great decision. I mean, a lot of public Republicans supported it. Most um, Protestants. Barbara Bush. Yeah. Barbara Bush. They were sort of in agreement with it, and it was viewed more as a Catholic issue. But um, 
over time, there were leaders of what would become the sort of religious right of the current day. They were starting, they, they were really unhappy with the direction the Republican Party was taking. They felt like it was soft on communism. They were really upset about the civil rights movement, the women's right movement, and they wanted to inspire a hyper-conservative counter-revolution and seize control. And so they kind of got together and basically went down a laundry list of the issues they thought might unite their new movement. So we're talking 1980 or so, about seven years after Roe v. Wade. Abortion was, you know, pretty far down on the list. Number one was what they called the unfair tax treatment of racist segregation schools. Mm-hmm. The women's right movement was another, et cetera. But when they came down to abortion, a light bulb kind of went on and they were like, huh, that could work. So over time, they purged pro-choice voices from the Republican Party. They knew that this was an issue that could unite conservative Protestants and conservative Catholics and bring in what they, one of the members called, you know, some of our fringed friends. And uh, over time, they really kind of, it's almost like they reduced all of politics to religion. And then they reduced all of religion to the issue of abortion. And it's, you know, resulted in the creation of an almost like, you could call it a pro-life religion. Um, it's, it's a modern creation. It was created for political purposes. See, leaders of the movement know very well if you can get people to vote on a single binary life or death issue, you can control their vote. And that and feeds into the patriarchy that whose control of a woman's body is perpetrated in this in their movement politics, in their identity politics. And the privilege part of Christian nationalism is that it's clear that certain choices of person's health care, including reproductive health, there are individuals that may be privileged to get it, but as the Christian nationalists made it more and more difficult to get an abortion on demand, increasingly more states, that this, again, was there's privilege involved with who could get access, who could travel the distance, who could leave work in order to have a procedure done for whatever reason. But it's also uh, very, I think, underappreciated the fact that there are a lot of other types of reproductive services that are really under attack. So if, if I'll give you an example. Yes. In Catholic hospitals, I write about this in, uh, in my book. And we do, we, and we experience that. I want listeners to remember what happened when Hogue Hospital was one of the first to merge with the St. Joseph system in Orange County. So I want listeners to think in those terms when that was happening, as you laid this out, Catherine, sort of the whole strategy. Right. Well, first I want to say that religious nationalists have succeeded in framing this issue of religious freedom as one that involves wedding services. It's always about the cake baker, isn't it? Or the calligrapher or the florist or other people performing, you know, personal but hardly life-saving or essential services. Now, setting aside the question of principle, I mean, is it ever right to grant business the right to discriminate against other people in this way? Um, The implication in these types of narratives is that the stakes are small. You know, if you can't buy your cake in one store, why not go to the next baker who will actually find some pleasure in helping you celebrate your wedding day? But to see what's really, truly at stake in the Trump administration's focus on healthcare. They're really focused on what they call religious liberty and healthcare. We have to think about the consequences of religious exemptions that have long been in place within the Catholic uh, healthcare system. 
And it's not just about abortion. It's a type of religious freedom. It's helpful to think about the kinds of consequences of the religious exemptions that have long been in place. So Catholic hospitals are governed by a numbered set of rules that affirm Catholic teachings as they relate to healthcare. They're called ethical and religious directives, and they act as guidelines for all Catholic healthcare facilities. They impose limitations on the kinds of services and procedures that they can deliver. And these directives are laid down by the Vatican and codified by the U.S. Conference of Catholic Bishops. So they're the work of clergymen and not doctors, not healthcare professionals. All employees, Important. Yeah. Yeah, all employees of Catholic hospitals and healthcare facilities have to follow these directives as a condition of their employment. And they also apply to a lot of contractors and suppliers. So the ERDs are very clear on- They're um, clear to the employees. The consumer hasn't seen that fine print. It's, so it's like, it is not a symmetrical or contractual arrangement here. That's absolutely true. So what they actually do is, I'll just give you one example. Their, you know, pregnancy often ends in miscarriage and they prohibit certain types of services that they choose to call mm. abortion. So if you go to a hospital and you're experiencing a miscarriage and are in need of health preserving and life-saving services, often you're going to get turned away. Uh, I served as an investigator on ACLU report, American Civil Liberties Union report, uh, looking at the consequences of these ERDs on maternal care in Catholic hospitals. And it was really pretty horrifying. There are women who have suffered terrible consequences, life-threatening consequences, health consequences that have had permanent uh, deleterious effects on their health. You know, America's maternal mortality is already the highest among the nations in the developing world, and it's rising sharply. Right now, it's more than 26% between 2000 and 2015. There's another study that analyzes the particular danger this arrangement poses to women of color. Black women are three to four times as likely to die of pregnancy complications as white women. And according to this report, it's called Bearing Faith, The Limits of Catholic Healthcare for Women of Color. They found that in many states, women of color disproportionately receive reproductive care restricted by the ERDs. So they, they said that pregnant women of color are more likely than their white counterparts to get this type of reproductive care dictated by bishops rather than medical doctors. So I found, you know, countless instances of women who were suffering a miscarriage and they were already running a fever and running an infection and they go to their emergency room at their local Catholic hospital, not understanding that they were going to get turned away because the Catholic hospital knows that they're in trouble, knows that their pregnancy is doomed, and yet they won't do what they call a DNC or other type of, you know, to aid the completion of the the pregnancy in order to save the woman's life or preserve her health. And, and women have really been harmed by this. And I, I would leave it for another interview to open up all the way about how the records are being kept about uh, and capturing the kind of fatalities that are a result of the ERDs being exercised at these hospitals. There's a lot to be said for that. And I, I want to give a glancing reference because we have a lot of other things to cover is that even the pharmacist is in a position to exercise the ERDs and the window where an oral contraception can be taken to end a, to terminate a pregnancy and very un, in an uncomplicated way that the 
pharmacists can exercise that ERD and we have then more complications for that one healthcare consumer. Among it's true. Others. And, you know, in a way, it's really a license for religious privilege. So, you know, if you're uh, sincerely held religious beliefs or sincerely held beliefs of conscience say that you're entitled to best practices medical care when you need it rather than uh, medical care uh, governed by dogma, religious dogma. Right, right. There's no liberty in this type of religious liberty legislation for you. And the whole thing about the pharmacist is a really a case in point. It's really a license for a person who holds one variety of beliefs to um, belittle and berate people who hold other forms of religious beliefs and to say, well, I can heap my contempt on you and I have the stamp of, my contempt has the stamp of government approval to do that. You can't counter and say, well, it's my religious liberty uh, that I uh, am entitled to best practices medical care and I'm entitled to birth control and things like that. Really? It's a way of imposing hierarchies of value and hierarchies of, of value on different uh, belief systems, uh, regarding different belief systems. Privilege of whose belief. Well, let's talk about, too, this, in dominionism, it, it's reflected in how the Christian nationalists, the religious right, challenge science. And that is in the sort of the pedagogical resources and challenging uh, climate change, but of course, challenging evolution. But that, as you say in your book, though, that's one of the kind of like low key, well, we just, we don't really want the, the climate change texts to be a part of our curriculum as the charter schools are pushing out the dogma of the Christian nationalists. Yeah, there's, um, you know, religious right has had a longstanding hostility to science. And it's connected, I think, to the fear that the principles of science and uh, critical thinking are going to undermine religious mm. orthodoxies. So if right. you think one of the pro-slavery theologians, one of the very you know, big voices of, and, uh, sort of, of pro-slavery theology, uh, Robert Louis Dabney, called physical sciences theories of unbelief, theories of atheism. So, you know, even ever since that time, hostility to science has characterized the more extreme forms of religious nationalism in the United States. And today, the hardcore of climate deniers is concentrated among people who themselves identify as religiously conservative Republicans. Some of their leaders, thinking about those who are allied with an organization called the Cornwall Alliance for the Stewardship of Creation, They've denounced environmental science as a kind of cult. They call it a cult of the green dragon. They're actually casting environmentalism is in these sort of demonic terms. What is a green dragon? They're like, as though they're calling it a serpent or calling it demonic. And they assert that it's false theology. And that fellow that we mentioned earlier, Ralph Drollinger, who has that organization, Capital Ministries, he too has called environmentalism a false theology. So I guess we can take up the, the educational aspect of what Christian nationalism brings about. And I, because I, there's some, some terms I want for people to understand that your book lays out for us to consider. You earlier talked about how the Christian nationals have found a way to mine the public funds to advance Christian nationalist pedagogy and materials. and so. 
there's the, the materials, and then there's the location. And you talked about church planting. And I, I want you to explain that to listeners. Well, I'm not so concerned with church planting in general. I mean, church planting is as old as the Christianity itself. It's a way that, you know, their other religions grow their own houses of worship, and that's absolutely fine with me. My concern, I have to repeat here, is not with religion itself or with any particular religious doctrine. It's about um, the political aspects of religious groups, um, their political actions, when religion really becomes a, a type of partisan agitation and when it's taking advantage of the public purse. For instance, when, when religions are asking the general public to fund their activities and their evangelism, which is not supposed to happen. That's, uh, that's why we have separation of church and state. You can have your religion and that's great and I can have mine and that's terrific but I'm not going to ask the taxpayer to fund my religion and I shouldn't be asked as a taxpayer to fund anyone else's private beliefs. That's the whole justification for the myriad exemptions of religion, right? Remember, they're tax exempt. They have all these special exemptions like um, parsonage exemptions that other non-religious nonprofits don't have. And the whole point of the special status that they have, and they're allowed to discriminate, you know, but for these particular reasons, they should be free and clear of interference of, of, of the government. They shouldn't be receiving government money or be uh, installing themselves in government buildings. And it's the latter part that really is concerning to me, the idea of planting churches inside public schools. So a lot of houses of worship these days are taking advantage of publicly funded spaces by installing themselves in public schools on Sundays and often other days. I was living in, in New York City when there was a church planted in our children's public elementary school that was meeting uh, up to four times a week on Sundays and also three days a week. They paid something like, uh, they called it rent. It wasn't rent. They paid a facility use fee to the like one of the like the union that helps manage the functioning of the school it amounted to something like $50 a week it was like a tiny amount of money they called it rent that's not rent that's like me squatting in a building and mm. not paying the landlord but hiring a housekeeper you know to come in and paying the housekeeper and saying well i paid rent cuz i paid my housekeeper they were basically paying the janitor's union a fee that only partially covered the cost of cleaning the space up after them. So they were basically, you know, in return, they had this incredibly, um, you know, nice, safe public school building with multiple classrooms. They were getting free heating and cooling. We, the parents at the school, were, you know, we were raising money through the PTO to renovate the bathrooms. We renovated the bathrooms at the cost of several hundred thousand dollars that they're using. They didn't contribute to the cost. They didn't have to uh, pay for furniture. And what they were doing, you know, it, the school was actually across the street from our house. So I would go to the church. I went to this church quite a number of times to sort of figure out what they were about. Mm -hmm, and mm -hmm. They were actually, the pastor said to the congregants, Notice the names of the children on the pieces of paper because we had all put our kids' names and pictures up all over the school. He said, Data mining. He said, <laughs> Pray for them. Pray that they and their families should come to know Jesus and say, This is a house of God. So I am mandated by law to send my children to this public school in my district where their, their images and names are going to get used 
in the religious ceremonies of a group that believes I am going to hell. I mean, it was really astonishing. Mm. It was also, um, you know, happened to be a church that was like anti-LGBT, anti-gay rights. It was, you know, um, male patriarchy, all that kind of stuff. So the school building is not, you know, these buildings shouldn't be used by groups that are advocating discrimination and frankly any kind of religion it's just uh, this is against the separation of church and state even if it was a liberal progressive religion it would have been uh, problematic to me but i thought it was particularly rich that they were arguing that this is part of their religious liberty to be allowed to use the public school at taxpayer expense well i guess i'd i'd like to take the remainder of our time together Catherine stewart and look at these circumstances. I want to focus on what's going on in this region, and you can talk about how the movement is at work with this. We have in Orange County an entity, it's a countywide entity, the Orange County Board of Education. They are separate from the Orange County superintendent. And when I interviewed the ones who were willing to be interviewed, the candidates for re-election or the new candidates. Some of them uh, decided they didn't want to be interviewed for uh, the primary in on March 3rd. But the playbook that you're, I call it a playbook, but the, the charter uh, that you're describing about what is valued among na Christian nationalists was definitely what the candidates were in, and they are now, they are in the majority. I believe it may be, it's a three to two, it may be a four to one majority coming into the general election. And so we have, a, it's an entity that has allowed for, and you, you talk about how charter schools and vouchers, and I'm going to let listeners read the book where you talk about how there was that, that transition away from the voucher agenda into the, how the charter so elegantly can mine the public funds, but the charter school applications with the Orange County Board of Education are unscrupulously permissive about the, uh, approving those petitions, those applications, and there's been a clash between the superintendent in Orange County and the Orange County Board of Education in the challenge to the denial of those petitions. It's tying up more money. It's sort of like, is the end game just to sort of draw down the funds of the Orange County Board of Education so that regular duties are undermined because there's no money left because of, of the exorbitant uh, administrative and legal tabs now associated with the challenges and counter challenges to the these new charter school petition so that we, we've got that going on and we have i, I want to talk to about the uh we i alluded to what the, there's more and more hospitals now that you were talking about that are in orange county that are under in the saint joseph system where the health decisions are being made and we also have now I'm, i want to move into some, some of the factors of the pandemic that is playing out right up until this week, there's identity politics with how the constituents, how our healthcare, how our public health is being managed, and that everybody's on their own, everybody can do what they want, they don't have to wear face masks necessarily. That directive ended yesterday, at the time of this taping on June 12th, 
on June 11th, the Orange County Health Agency with the Board of Supervisors exerting the leadership, so to speak, had discontinued the requirement for wearing face masks in many public settings. So I, I guess I'd like for you to talk about how the pandemic is showing the colors of the Christian nationalist kinds of leadership. I will say that if you want to understand where some of the right-wing activism around the issues like the pushback on uh, COVID-related health restrictions and church openings, I think we need to talk about yes. an organization called Church United. It's a pastor's organization founded by a fellow in Orange County um, named Jim Doman. Yes. So Doman's story is a really interesting one, I think, for understanding the larger movement. He's a pastor who calls himself a former homosexual or a former. He lives in Orange County and he founded this group, Church United, which organizes dozens of events every year that encourage pastors throughout the state of California to engage in politics at the local and national level. He connects pastors in his Church United network. They have lots of regional events. They have big state events. They go for uh, annual tours of the state capitol in Sacramento, and they help, uh, he helps them do a big tour in Washington, D.C., where they can meet politically important and well-connected movement leaders. So in essence, it's a voter outreach machine working through pastors. If they get pastors on board, communicate to them the issues that matter at the ballot box, then hopefully these pastors can turn out their congregations to vote for you know, the issues that matter. They say, quote, life is a really big one. So it's very interesting. I want to talk about a couple yes. of the, um, the issues that they've affected in local politics. I attended an event at Doman's Invitation, which was very kind of him, in a church in Chula Vista, San Diego County. And I learned how this, uh, his organization is impacting uh, right-wing pushback over California's Healthy Youth Act, for instance. At the event I attended, we were given a handout depicting alleged sex education curricula in public schools. They gave us a one-shade sheet page with this very lurid mashup of graphics and text. And as a parent of two kids, I have to say it was concerning. Some of the material struck me as inappropriate for the age groups that the flyer suggested that they were reaching. Other bits of the material seemed really factually incorrect or even bizarre. And I could see why some of these materials might be concerning to parents. And so on the back of this sheet was a list of 77 California politicians who have supported California's Healthy Youth Act, and all but one were Democrats. So the sheet, as it was presented, looked pretty, like, concerning. I was like, I can't believe all mm -hmm. these Democratic lawmakers are supporting this crazy stuff. So when I later checked with a representative from the San Francisco Unified School District, she told me that none of the graphics or materials on the handout were used in any district public school in the manner implied by organizers of, of the event. The sheet mm -hmm. was extremely misleading. So some of the materials that the sheet suggested were taught, you know, in the, at the primary level were actually taught at the high school level where they might be appropriate, you know, or they would oh be appropriate. Goodness. And the, they showed us some weird graphics, didn't even appear anywhere or were not taught in any San Francisco Unified School District. It was just really surprising to me, but um, it kind of shows how 
this type of disinformation is a really great way to get congregants upset enough to turn out to city council meetings and get them to do away with the program altogether. And the organization has also been a church that was uh, is a member of the organization, whose pastor is a member of the organization, I should say, uh, Church United, was behind that uh, Supreme Court case that got turned away at the end of May. There was a request from a California church to block enforcement of state restrictions on attendance at religious services and, and SCOTUS kind of turned it away. But so it, Church United gets pastors involved in a number of different, you know, both issues of both local and national concern. I'm not sure whether they're involved in your particular issue with, with charters or not. Um, you know, I haven't. Well, see, that's the, that, that is issue. the concern how outright this is. And I just want to, for those of you who happen to just join us now, my guest for this whole hour is Catherine Stewart. She's an investigative journalist and author, and her new book is The Power Worshippers, Inside the Dangerous Rise of Religious Nationalism, published by Bloomsbury. And we're talking about whether the Orange County religious right is outwardly involved and a more um, discreet way involved with the Church United. I don't have the literature handy with the some of the, the candidate material going into the California primary of March 3rd. So I don't, I can't look up and see whether Church United is there, but we well, won't see it on the materials. You really have to dig a little bit deeper. Yes. Yes. Find these connections. And again, I have no idea whether that organization is involved with this particular initiative that you're describing. Well, that's the thing. I've been asking around a lot of places, Catherine, with um, it, it has a very, it has a distinct look to it where in the last month, the weekly county board of supervisors meetings, there have been, it's like, it's totally lopsided. The people that are appearing, there may be upward of 30 and then 90 and 100 and then 90 some people turning out in those weekly meetings that are hysterical about wearing face masks in the age of COVID here. And that the board is saying that they shouldn't be, they should not be required to wear them. They're, they're bringing up all these kinds of bogus uh, claims about the health aspects, the health hazards of wearing a mask. And, then, well, I have to say, we can't discount the effect, the general effect of the right-wing propaganda. I, you right. know, I haven't, you know, hap- don't happen to have seen that type of uh, initiative in uh, this but, particular organization, but we can't discount the effect of the right-wing propaganda sphere. I'm sure everybody listening flame has it. A, a somebody they know, whether it's a family member or, or someone like a neighbor or someone they know who watches, who takes in some of that, you know, far-right media you know, from Fox all the way off to the right to the QAnon conspiracy stuff. And it's, it's really sad. It's sort of, you know, these right-wing um, outlets have done a pretty terrific job of separating some really good and well-meaning people from the world of, of facts and reason. And uh, it's a way to control people. It's a way to sort of control their, their vote, for sure. And, you know, if you can, uh, it's a way to control their behavior. It's, well, it's really tragic. And this dogma goes, I want to say, I want to call out the one that actually represents our particular Board of Supervisor District, Don Wagner, that the, there isn't any kind of, he doesn't really bring up public health. He disparages other leaders in the state. 
And it, it's like his oratory is an exact replication of what he used to say when he was holding other offices, whether it was the, the college district board back in the 90s as mayor with what his dogma was about. And it's now part of the, the discussion in public health with, before the county board of supervisors. But the, the, the actual county CEO, Frank Kim, has said the emails supporting the face mask requirement. Those were nine to one in support of the face mask, but they're not the ones that are providing the optics at the Board of Supervisors. So that's where it has a very distinct feel of some sort of orchestrated from some recesses to bring out people and they're from, you know, they're the suburban moms, there's somebody says they're an attorney, there's a practicing a nurse and her husband's a physician. There's, there's all professions in that making the case that masks are not healthy. And so it's a very concerted physical presence, but in the actual number counting, the support for face masks is nine to one. So there's that aspect going on. Well, while we talk about the pandemic, I also want to talk about the last two weeks of public mobilization around a racial justice case with George Floyd. We're hearing, Catherine Stewart, a restructure discourse like I've never heard in my entire life of involved active politicking. And so I'd like to know if you see in the, the reaction in the general public, it's very local. I don't think we've ever seen people organize in Rancho Santa Margarita, in Newport Beach, in Huntington Beach, in Irvine, in all of these suburban municipalities. We've never seen a restructuring of what the police force should look like, what healthcare kinds of concerns uh, that are coming out of, the, of people that are not evenly protected in their public health with the pandemic. So I'd like to know if, if you see cracks a little bit in this very persistent infrastructure being built by the Christian nationalists, the Christian right, is taking place in these last two weeks. Is there anything you see phenomenally different that we can recalibrate the persistent success of the Christian right in our body politic? I think it's worth pointing out that the movement is really not separable from race and racism, no matter how hard its leaders try to do so. Heads of a lot of the leading right-wing policy groups and their affiliated organizations are often trying to reach out to pastors of color, and especially pastors of color. This is something Church United has actually been very successful in doing. They're reaching out to conservative-leaning pastors of color in order to capture a subsection of voters of color. But, you know, for substantial white majorities of these groups, the idea of religious heritage is very closely bound up with ideas about racial heritage and racial difference. And of course, Christian nationalists are fighting the culture wars on behalf of a political party, the Republican Party, that's made race-based voter suppression and race-based gerrymandering a key part of their political strategy. You can't support support equality unless you support equal right to a vote and access to the vote. 
And this is a movement that would be willing to deny the vote to a lot of folks in order to achieve its political gains. We heard Trump recently on an audio call say something like, well, if every American could vote, a Republican would never win another election. I mean, think about that. But you know, beyond that, I think that we can see that racism runs really deep in the movement. Think about the pro-slavery theologians who promoted the idea of America as a Christian nation. You know, that's an idea that they spoke about all the time. They thought it was, they advocated a very hierarchical interpretation of the Christian faith with absolute submission to their doctrines. You're not supposed to question it. They cast abolitionists as heretics and atheists. That pro-slavery theologian, Robert Louis Dabney, who I mentioned earlier, asserted yes. these hierarchies were ordained in the Bible. And he was opposed to public schools because he thought white people shouldn't have to pay taxes to educate black children. I want to um, tell you how this other pro-slavery theologian, James yes. Henley Thornwell, who was a contemporary of Dabney and was also a very well-connected, very well-off pro-slavery theologian, he summed up the wisdom of the age this way. He said, the parties in this conflict are not merely abolitionists and slaveholders. So he's looking at this dispute between abolitionists and slaveholders, said they are atheists, socialists, communists on the one side, and friends of order and regulated freedom on the other. So he was putting abolitionists on the side of atheists, and he was putting slaveholders on the side of regulated freedom. So a century later, think about segregationists like Bob Jones Jr. They supported integration and they supported segregation. A century later, segregationists called those who supported integration and opposed institutionalized racism atheistic. They called people who wanted to integrate schools and society atheistic. Uh, Bob Jones Jr. delivered a radio address in 1960 titled, Is Segregation Scriptural? And he said that segregation was God's established order. He said, God is the author of segregation. It's kind of astonishing that you know, they call in God to sort of justify the idea of their hierarchies of value. He referred to desegregationists as satanic propagandists and religious infidels who are trying to overthrow the established order of God. So these ideas were carried through to other influential theologians. I'm thinking about today, there are very few, I, mean, I mentioned some that do, there are some very aggressively and overtly racist theologians in the movement today, but some are more subtle about it. You know, they'll say things like, I don't know, so, sometimes you hear this, this idea that, you know, a sort of reluctance to take on structural racism because they say like, you know, racism is just a problem of sin and the only solution to sin is the liberty of the gospel. Well, you know what? That's really not going to address the issue of structural racism because certainly racism, you know, is a sin of the heart, but it's, there's such a thing as structural racism. It's very real. And, um, and know, Catherine, that was it. That what excuse me that there's always a delay in the zoom sessions folks. And I apologize for what sounds like I'm talking over Catherine Stewart here, but it's right up until this morning on national public radio's morning edition. I will find the name of the clergyman, but he, he said, it's not a matter of race. It's a matter of we're all sinners. And it's, it's like right out of the playbook that you're talking about. He wouldn't. That's interesting. He would not. I will have to look up his name. I wasn't taking notes when I was listening to at the very beginning this morning. So uh, I will pull it up. But and listeners, I apologize for not calling up that name. But it was a Protestant uh, clergyman 
who made the case that it's it's about the sinner that we that has to reconcile what's going on and there isn't race going it's in interesting play. yeah conser conservative evangelical theologians have long rejected the idea of the social gospel or the idea that the kingdom of god should be pursued by making life better here on earth so my view is that if you're unwilling to acknowledge the problem and take on structural racism you're really not going to get anything done to solve the problem and also it's kind of like shifting the lines between insider and outsider the pure and the impure it's like saying well you know the only solution to you know racism is just sin and the solution to sin is the gospel it's like saying well if everyone would just believe like i do then there will be no problems i mean it's rejection of pluralism it's rejection of the idea of equality and laws that you know, sort of promote equity and equality in our society and it's a rejection of the idea that we need to really examine structural racism and and address its root causes so catherine stewart was my guest she's author of the power worshiper inside the dangerous rise of religious nationalism published by bloomsbury publishing house it's available at her website or folks from your favorite independent book dealer. Catherine Stewart, this has been such an edifying pleasure. Thank you for your time. Oh, thank you so much for the conversation. The extended portion of this interview is available on my website, askaleader.com. It includes details for a Zoom session in which Catherine Preston will speak at the local organization Women for Orange County their forum on June 21st at 2 p.m. Pacific time. Well, that was my wrap. Next week, I'm going to take stock of doing this show for 10 whole years. Guests who've graced this show with their presence, you can spell that how you like, will do this with me. KUCI station manager Kevin Stockdale will also weigh in. And then, folks, for the next 10 years, let me know what you'd like to cover. See Shambaugh at KUCI.org, my email, or tweet me at CL Shambaugh. Talk with you next week. Thank you for listening, everyone. Before you leave your bubble, remember, darn your face mask before meeting up, okay? Okay.